I like this hall. It's got a nice feel to it. Cozy. But I suppose you want me to talk to you about Dharma. Uh, What's going on here? What are we doing here? This practice. I remember my first uh, meditation retreat very well. I was 26 years old. I had a good college degree. I had uh, done some therapies, Gestalt and Freudian therapy. and But nobody in my culture had, had told me that you could actually develop this part of your mind and step outside of your own psyche and observe yourself. That was a real revelation. I sort of realized that I, I could be my own shrink and I could sit there and nod and say, what else? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I wouldn't have to pay it at $150 an hour. But as you have learned uh, over some time, I'm sure, and other places too, Basic meditation practice, you sit and your intention is to just be present with your breath. And then you realize that your mind is continuing to think and have plans and fantasies without even consulting you. (laughs) And what a revelation that is, what a shock that is. For most of us in our culture, we are so identified with our minds, we can't imagine that they would go on without our willing. That, that the thinking would continue with, you know, even against our will. We just want to be with the breath. A real shock. Yeah, that, you know, that first look was really disturbing because it was the first one, the first time. They opened the door and my mind clearly had a thinking problem. You know, it started thinking the minute I got up in the morning, kept thinking in the middle of the afternoon, had to have a couple thoughts before I went to bed at night. I needed an intervention. And mindfulness was the intervention. Mindfulness was the tool by which I could observe myself and in the process, begin to understand that this was not I, me, mine. And that my experience was pretty universal. Not so personal, not so individual. It's been a long process, but it's been very rewarding along the way. What I've encountered is what everybody encounters, which you might have encountered today a little bit. Difficult states of mind. They're so typical uh, of people who start to study themselves, start to study their own mind. They're listed, they they made a list, uh, you know, one of the many lists in Buddhism. The five hindrances, they're called. But they're really five very difficult states of mind that 
we encounter over and over again as we live and as we, as we meditate, we see them clearly. The five are desire and aversion. That's two. Desire, aversion, doubt, big one, restlessness, and sloth and torpor which is a public interest law firm, right? Sloth and Torpor. (laughs) (laughs) So have have any of you not experienced one or several of these today? Anybody? Well, of course not. Otherwise you would be an alien or completely enlightened and I'm guessing that you're not that or you wouldn't have taken this retreat. Not that it wouldn't be fun if you were enlightened, but, you know, you wouldn't need it. (laughs) The fact that it's so common should be our first real lesson, our first great insight, and that is don't take it all so personally. Everybody goes through this. This is not my condition. This is the human condition. If you wanted circumstances to be different, you know, you either should have come to a different planet or you should have, uh, you know, come along later on when life has evolved a a more uh, sensible uh, way of being or perhaps a more maybe manually controlled, they'll, they'll figure out a way to... Uh, so you can, you can be in charge of your mind and the emotional states of your mind. I mean, it's so obvious what the, you know, what the Buddha taught, and it's so obvious that we, we don't see it hardly ever, that if you really were in control of your emotional life, you'd be happy all the time. If you were in charge of it. So, don't take it personally. I'll look at desire and aversion together because they're really two sides of the same coin of a dissatisfied mind, a mind that's moving towards something or away from something. The first thing to acknowledge is that desire and aversion are perfectly natural. That's one of my mantras. And it applies to just about everything. Perfectly natural. Uh, Every living being has a form of desire and aversion. Uh, A single-celled organism will extend its little membrane when there's food in the vicinity and retract it when there's some kind of threat. You could think of trees reaching for the sun as a form of desire, you know, finding ways to get up there to get more sunlight. Or animals running away from a loud sound. It's common to to everything that lives, a form of desire and aversion. A lot of it is very instinctual. Long before Freud... Or Darwin, the Buddha understood that he he called uh, he called what we now call instincts. He called them underlying tendencies. 
that when there was something pleasant in the vicinity, you would want more of it, and if there was something unpleasant, you would want it to go away. These are underlying tendencies. And he saw that much of it is hardwired. Now we're, we're understanding how hardwired it is. This is uh, neuroscientist Melvin Connor. The motivational portions of the brain, particularly the hypothalamus, have characteristics relevant to the apparent chronic nature of human dissatisfaction. Experiments suggest that our chronic internal state will be a vague mixture of anxiety and desire, best described by the phrase, I want, spoken with or without an object for the verb. That that is the way our brain is built, to be in a constant, the default position is a constant state of anxiety and desire. Now, you, in some ways, you have to bow to it and say thank you, because it is a way of taking care of you. It is a adaptation that allows you to, or forces you, or demands that you take your hand off a hot stove, or, you know, or that you keep uh, having sex, or that you eat food. You know, neurochemicals provide a certain kind of pleasure, and that keeps us. Um, in the game, doing what the, they, they call in biology the four F's. Fighting, fleeing, feeding, and reproduction, I think. It's <laughs> the fourth one. But that's, you know, we have to bow to, those, to the fact that we have that, that instinctual mechanism. But the Buddha realized that the source of so much of our suffering is the fact that over and above the, the necessary instinctual drives that we have is this continual wheel of dissatisfaction that goes around in the mind. That his, one of the great revelations was that unhappiness is a result of our own inner state of being. That we're not unhappy because we, we haven't found or uh, acquired the latest object of our desire. It is the wheel of desire itself that just keeps going around. And once you have something, you know, you want something else. Or once you have something, you want more of it. And if there's any ever been a proof of that, it's our civilization where, you know, we just have so much stuff and there's still more stuff to get and it's always more and newer and better and shinier and, and it's an impossible uh, situation. It just feeds that desire wheel. And we're told, you know, once we uh, satisfy that desire, then we're going to look like the person in the commercial with the car and the family and the little white picket fence and live happily ever after. <laughs> yeah. So it was a real revelation of the Buddha and uh 
it is something that he put his mind to, uh, to apply practices that could allow you to see this condition and begin to override it, override the instincts that keep you continually on this, on this wheel of consumption and, and desire. One of the, uh, the great discoveries that I, I love to talk about because I find it just so fascinating. Um, one of the great discoveries of the 20th century was at the National Institute of Mental Health. Dr. Paul McLean was uh, studying the evolution of the brain and realized that we don't have a brain. We have three brains. And that right now inside your skull is a fully functioning reptilian brain and a fully functioning mammalian brain or limbic system and the new human brain or neocortex. And there is increasing and serious scientific evidence to indicate that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> that consciousness kind of comes in late in the game and you know, makes excuses for us or rationalizes. We're not rational animals, is what he was saying. We're rationalizing animals. But to see the, the, uh, the dissatisfaction, to see the way the mind works, is not a failure. That's what you've been doing. You know, you've been seeing it. And it's, it can feel like a failure because, you know, I don't want to keep desiring. I don't want to keep running off and planning and have my mind do that. I, and yet it keeps doing that as you're meditating. And, but you're beginning to see that it does that within you and without you, as George Harrison wrote. And that is the beginning of your freedom. It's still a shock. I mean, I remember once uh, having awareness of this little routine. I was sitting, my legs were hurting, so there was aversion. And along with the aversion was a desire for the bell to ring. So there was a desire. And then the bell rang, and there was a moment of satisfaction as I would, but even before I got up, just as I was starting to get up, I was wanting to go and get some tea. I didn't want to go do the walking. I thought maybe I'd go back to my room and look at my stuff for a while and, you know, anything. But, and it was just like one thing after another. I was watching the, you know, the mind just, just continually pushing me along. It's really a shock. Sometimes take a, a session of, of of meditation, and, and this is really uh, encouraging you also to stay curious and to really investigate what's going on. Uh, take a session and, or 15 minutes of a session and count how many desires arise in that time. You might be amazed. So this was the Buddha's Revelation. The first insight is that the thirst of craving is the basis of our suffering. The second insight is that by the cooling of this thirst, no more suffering is created.
The desiring mind has no shame, you know. Have you ever been someplace where you actually wish you were there? You know, you wish you were there, maybe a little different, maybe with somebody else, or there was, you know, the sunset was a little redder or bluer, and it's like, give me a break, you know. It's, there's a great poem by Kobayashi Isa, a Japanese poet. I'm in Kyoto, yet I long for Kyoto. <laughs> oh, bird of time. Uh, another great thing that we can experience in doing this practice is that occasionally we find a taste of the mind without desire. And that's a taste that many, many, many people never have indicating a different kind of happiness, showing us a different kind of satisfaction. The Buddha said it's the highest happiness when that desire wheel has uh, stopped. And you'll feel it for some moments. Guaranteed. (laughs) Or your money back, all right? (laughs) But the human condition, I I was once uh, just by accident on an airplane with the Dalai Lama, uh, an 18-seater. I I was flying back from Dharamsala to New Delhi, and he and his entourage were there at the airport and got on the plane. He was sitting a few seats behind me, and uh, my wife at the time was reading his autobiography, where he says he's afraid of horses and flying. And I would occasionally look back at him, and you know we were flying over the Himalayan foothills with all the updrafts, and he, was, he had cotton in his ear, he was pale, he was chanting his mantra, he had his head against the window. He was obviously terrified. The Dalai Lama. Nobody is immune from it that I know of. Fear, sorrow. That's the nature of this planet. I felt, I felt a lot safer on that flight, by the way, having the Dalai Lama there, but he obviously didn't. So doubt is another common state of mind that we encounter in meditation. I think a better word would be uncertainty, but I'm not sure. (laughs) Doubt is that condition of, it's a condition of anxiety and fear. Uh, We want things to be certain. We want to know what's going to happen. We want a, a solid, dependable path to walk and things to happen in a very predictable, dependable way. Unfortunately, things are not set up that way, and we know it. We, it's, it's, Joseph Goldstein, our teacher, common teacher, 
Oh, he says, anything can happen at any time. And we know that. We know there's no finding any kind of lasting and perfect security or correctness even. So that doubt is always there. Doubt is always there. And what it stirs up is a lot of planning mind. You know, trying to cover all the bases and figure out if you do it this way and if you go that way and who you're going to encounter and all the, all the little uh, possibilities that can keep you forever in, in this kind of anxious planning mode. The most doubt uh, we see as teachers is doubt about ourselves, uh, students, and yeah, and, and us too. Yeah, uh, we we uh, we're always wondering, and this may ring true to you. How am I doing? Am I okay? Is this okay? Is my behavior okay? Where, where do I fit in in the pecking order? Am I as good as they are? Or, uh, you know, where do I stand? It's a curse in our, in our civilization, also partly because we have come to a kind of extreme of individualism. You know, everybody does it on their own. You're, all, you're, you're on your own. You know, you make it or break it by yourself. Uh, you know, there's no, not much of a sense of what the anthropologists used to call participation mystique, a sense of belonging to nature or a tribe or something bigger than you. So uh, uh, the price we pay is this kind of uh, sense that our whole future, our whole life is actually... Uh, Determined by our decisions. Nobody even says, you know, God willing anymore. God has nothing to do with it. It's all on your shoulders. And it's an enormous burden because that's not the way things work in the world. And uh, you can never be rich enough or secure enough or, you know, thin enough or, or anything enough. Especially if you're competing with, you know, George Clooney and uh, who is it now? Julia? No, not Julia anymore. Penelope Cruz. Penelope Cruz. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. Well, you wouldn't be competing with her. You'd be competing for her. But, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, and it, it is all the Im- those images. Um, as one of my teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, said, uh, you, you Westerners, you have High-class anxiety. (laughs) High-class doubt. (laughs) Alfred Adler, one of the great psychologists of the 20th century, said, to be human is to feel inferior.
Sometimes in meditation practice, or these retreats, doubt arises about the practice itself, you know. This is so strange, and here I am sitting here, and what's no progress, has any progress been made, you know, after a day of sitting and watching my mind, and I should have gone to Sufi dancing or something that <laughs> more joyous, and and look at these teachers, they don't have uniforms, they have no, they have no, they don't look like teachers. <laughs> doubt. The final two hindrances, restlessness and sloth and torpor, I think they're both, uh, you know, have some uh, similarities as as a physiological experience of coming to a retreat, suddenly cutting yourself off from all your busyness in your mind's uh, usual preoccupations with words and machines and contacts and uh, that you 're going to be restless because you know all that 's been taken away from you, and what is the mind going to do? It feels underused and <laughs> like something 's going to sneak up and hurt you because you 're not doing enough stuff and and sloth and torpor, conversely, you know, we're just, we're tired. It's not easy being a citizen of a superpower. We're tired. And we come to a, and we come to a meditation retreat, you know, and, and by sitting silently, we really allow ourselves to feel how deeply tired we are. And, and, you know, aside from being a superpower citizen, we are humans, and it's not easy being a human. You know, you have to feed this body a few times a day, which means you have to work or hunt. <laughs> you have to, every time you get out of bed in the morning, you have to fight gravity. You have to fight gravity, you know, with every step you take. And you're not told exactly why you're here or exactly what you're supposed to be doing while you're here. You're kind of just given enough consciousness to know that you do exist and that someday you're going to die, which you very much don't want to do, and, you know, you've got to figure out what you're supposed to do and, and then do it and somehow survive it. It's not... I, I, I would like to talk, give, give a whole talk on the first noble truth, which is, uh, I think, really one of the most penetrating, wise teachings of all the traditions. First noble truth, you know, about dukkha, suffering. But I won't go, I don't want to go too deep. I don't want to bum you out. It's the first night, you know. I'll do it. Yeah, <laughs> really. 
but uh, a couple of things that indicate sort of how uh, difficult it is, how what might be some of the cause of your restlessness or or your sloth and torpor. The evolutionary scientists say we're basically working with brains designed over millions of years for members of small tribes of hunter-gatherers. And now, suddenly, we're in the modern world and uh, we have to operate fairly sophisticated machinery and we have, we're called upon to absorb volumes and volumes of information in a lifetime. It's really a, a whole new world suddenly in, in any kind of biological time frame. And uh, it's a shock to the system. It's brains for members of small tribes of hunter-gatherers. That would explain our addiction to shopping, I guess. <laughs> You know, if it's out there, you just go get it. <laughs> there's, there's some indication that in meditation practice, we kind of turn down the rational, aggressive approach to the world. And... Uh, sort of open up the, the channel of the more intuitive, holistic thinking part of our brain. Learning to, learning to know in a different way than, than the uh, rational, intellectual way. So, the five difficult mind states, uh, you know, they can, they can be parsed in many different ways. Uh, but it's pretty clear that we all have them and work with them and confront them and see them clearly in meditation. We get different mixtures of these mind states, however, depending on our temperament. Each of us is born with a particular kind of energy to us. Every society has known that and has devised typologies to explain it. The Greeks believed that you were the way you were because of a mixture of four humors, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. And if you had a preponderance of phlegm, you were phlegmatic. Or if you had a preponderance of blood, you were sanguine and warm and cuddly, I guess. Uh, the Greeks and the Chinese also uh, associated people with different uh, natural phenomena, like uh, you know, you're you're soft like air, or uh, flexible like a willow, or hard like stone. Like everyone has a feel, a temper. We had the astrology craze, you know, what's your sign? 
Now we have the Enneagram craze. What's your number? I believe in the uh, Disney typology. You're either dopey, sleepy, grumpy. <laughs> but the scientists, the scientists have, the, have a typology now they're working on. They, of course, would dismiss all those other ones. They are looking for genes that select for four different personality types. And they may add more, but there, there are four they're looking for now. They've, they found one. They found a gene that selects for uh, novelty-seeking behavior. Uh, and apparently it has an extra-long dopamine receptor, and uh, that leads to a, you know, a kind of adventuresome uh, kind of being, an adventuresome person. They're looking for genes that select for uh, persistence, pain avoidance, and reward-dependent. So, uh, I mean, basically, your personality is not yours by choice. You didn't, uh, you didn't pick this. Which goes back to your parents. You didn't choose your parents either, did you? Some people believe they did. The dear ones who set your lifelong neurosis for you, they, you didn't get to choose those. Because so you have your te- you have your the temperament that's what you're born with a kind of feel and then on top of that in in early childhood you get kind of programmed by you know your upbringing and your and the uh, role models that you see and are around. This is uh, from Harvard psycho- psychology professor Jerome Kagan who wrote a book called Galen's Prophecy. He uh, did a long-term study of babies born with particular temperamental bias to be either bold or cautious, and based on their and studied their neurochemical neurochemistries, and found that that a particular temperament lasts pretty much a lifetime. It is there at birth, and he wrote in his book, "quote I have become more forgiving." of the few friends and family members who see danger too easily or rise to anger too quickly or sink to despair too often. I no longer blame them privately and have become more accepting and less critical of their moods and idiosyncrasies. Due to understanding that we are kind of who we are. I guess the question is, can you embrace yourself? I remember when I first started meditating, I actually thought I might be able to get myself a new personality. You know, if I meditated hard enough, I could become someone totally different. Someone easier to live with. (laughs) But after all this time of doing these practices, I'm basically the same person I ever was. But I don't see my personality, I don't take it quite so personally now. It's kind of like it lives through me, you know, but it's not who I am. You know, these thoughts, these feelings, this set of idiosyncrasies, 
I didn't, uh, I, I didn't create them. I, didn't know, I don't own them. It's like Ram Dass says. He says, my personality is kind of like a pet. I keep it around and, you know, I let it off the leash sometimes. But it's, you know, it's not me. You know, the primary identity has shifted a little bit. I just wanted to read you a little bit of this uh, article I found in the New Yorker. Or no, it's New York Times. They're doing studies on personality in other species of life. Scientists studying animals from virtually every species have found evidence of distinctive personalities, bundled sets of behaviors, quirks, preferences, and pet peeves that remain stable over time and across settings. They find diversity of temperament among monkeys, geese, sheep, squid, sunfish, finches, hyenas, and even spiders. They've identified hotheads and schmoozers, loners, dullards, and fearless explorers. And they have learned that animals like us often cling to the same personality for the bulk of their lives. The daredevil chicken of today is usually the one out crossing the road tomorrow. <laughs> so it's not just us humans that get these, you know, these personalities. There are some types uh, in the in uh, various schools of Buddhism. There are different types in uh, the Theravada school. This school, there's you're a greed or aversion or delusion, delusion type. I'm a, I'm a greed type. Uh, doesn't mean I'm not deluded at times, but I am. I that's my my dominant sort of approach to the world. I want more experience. I don't not necessarily want more stuff. I just want to clear that up. Uh, but I'm, I'm greedy for experience. Um, the Tibetans have five families, and you're born into one of five families. There's a, And the energy uh, has two aspects to it, a kind of negative and harmful aspect, and then a positive aspect if you can work with it and develop it and take the sort of ego out of it. So, so for instance, you, you can be born into the diamond family, uh, the Vajra family, which is, its symbol is diamond, and the poison is a kind of sharpness, in, uh, but the, uh, if used skillfully, that energy, that uh, diamond energy is penetrating wisdom. So, how do we work with these things, these mind states, these difficulties, these personalities? Well, the first thing is to observe them and to become familiar with them. And not to drive them away, but let them have their life. Let, let these mind states come and feel what it feels like to be in desire. Usually we're so caught in it, we don't actually feel ourselves in it. So we don't really get what it feels like, that it's not a pleasant condition. The Buddha's instruction in the Satipatthana Sutra uh, on how to deal with mind states is very simple. He says one knows 
an angry mind as a mind with anger. A mon- a one knows a mind with lust as a mind with lust. Very simple. Just know what's going on. Because in that way you begin to feel the effects of what's going on and you can perhaps find enough uh, space to not get lost in it, not start to wallow in it, not start to act on whatever mind state is there, whether it's anger or lust or fear. So you begin to gain some freedom from the push and pull of your own, of your own programming. A very uh, powerful and wonderful technique is to label. We've mentioned it a couple times, but labeling is a wonderful way of acknowledging that you've seen something and seen it clearly and that you are outside of it because you're labeling it. And it can work, work very well. You're sitting there and you're just totally restless. And you say, okay, restlessness is here. Let it be there. Let me feel it. Let me feel it fully, uh, as physical as a experience, a physical experience. Where is it? Where does it lodge itself? Does it, you know, does it have a, a place in me? Does it have a color to it? Let it. You, you're actually inviting it to get big and vivid, so that you can really understand it. Uh, there's some great practices. The Tibetans have some great practices for doing this kind of thing. Uh, in the uh, in this wonderful book, fabulous book called "The Flight of the Garuda," they invite people to arouse difficult emotions and difficult mind states, and and uh, see how big they can get, and then you know to be with them. So. Here's a couple exhortations to arouse some mind states. Emma Ho. Listen to this vagrant singing. At one time or another, all of you have been injured by others. Conscientiously recollect in detail how others have wrongfully accused you and victimized you, humiliating you and grinding you into the ground, and how you were shamed and deeply mortified. Brood on these things, letting hatred arise. And as it arises, look directly at its essence, at hatred itself. Then discover firstly where the hatred comes from, where it is now, where it goes to. Beautiful exercise. Think, all you lovers... Think of the beautiful man or woman in your heart. You gluttons, consider the food you crave, meat, cake, or fruit. You strutting peacocks, recall and dwell on the clothes you like to wear. You avarice traders, think about the form of wealth you desire, horses, jewelry, or cash. Carefully considering these matters, allow desire to arise. And when it arises, look directly at its essence, at the greedy and lustful self. Then discover first off where where it comes from, secondly, where it is now, where it goes to. It's a bold program of, of inviting and and inviting, being curious, learning to become intimate with the things that arise in you regularly, your personality, 
and learning to accept it all, to embrace it all. It doesn't mean that you act on it or that you let it rule in your life. In fact, it is the way to begin to master your programming, to see it clearly, be intimate with it. You know when it arises, and you, and you know you don't have to go with it. You have some choice in the world. Otherwise, we're just, we're just going along, uh, you know, reacting to one thing after another, and everything that the world is in charge of us, pushing and pulling us. So the difficulty that you have during the, these days, especially the first day or two, you know, and you're seeing all this stuff, you remember it's not a failure. You are exposing your, yourself to yourself. And it's a revelation, and it is very, very valuable to your future happiness and freedom. So let me close with a little poem here. The room, he says, fire and water. Kind of speaking to what, what I was just talking about. A fire on the left, a lovely stream on the right. One group walks toward the fire, into the fire. Another toward the sweet flowing water. But no one knows which are blessed and which are not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the stream. A head goes under the water and pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion are cheated by this reversal. The trickery goes further. The voice in the fire tells the truth, saying, I am not fire. I am fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. Let's sit for just a couple minutes and then we'll do a little walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.